edition of the UK Law Weekly podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week we're going to be looking at the case of Walker and Innerspec Limited, and the citation for this case is 2017 UKSC 47. Now, the keen-eared amongst you may have noticed that we are actually skipping past 2017 UKSC 46, and there are two good reasons for this. In the first instance, the Supreme Court in that particular case decided to refer a question to the European Court of Justice, and because we don't have an answer back from them yet, the case is actually of limited use. The other reason I haven't done an episode on O'Brien and Ministry of Justice, which is the name of 2017 UKSC 46, is because it actually gets a mention in this case, and so we will have an opportunity to discuss some of the points raised in relation to European jurisdiction later on. For now though, let's keep our focus on Walker and Innerspec, and we can begin by noting that Walker worked for Innerspec from 1980 until he retired in 2003. Throughout the entirety of that period, he also contributed to a pension pot that built up substantially over the years. Another fact that is relevant to this case is that Mr Walker is gay and has lived with his partner since 1993. In early 2006 they entered into a civil partnership and they are now in fact married to each other. Walker wanted to know whether upon his death Innerspec would pay the spouse's pension to his partner. The company came back to him and said that they would not do so because Walker retired in 2003 before civil partnerships became legal in the UK. Furthermore, under Schedule 9, Paragraph 18 of the Equality Act 2010, it is lawful to discriminate against any employee in a civil partnership or same-sex marriage in respect of any benefits that accrued before December 2005 when such partnerships became legal. This potentially has huge consequences. With the spousal pension, Mr Walker's husband would be entitled to more than £45,000 a year but without it, he would only get the statutory minimum of £1,000 a year. As we hinted at at the start of this episode, EU law is of special importance in the legal background of this case, and in particular we need to examine the Framework Directive, which has the citation 2000-78-EC, that was transposed into UK law by way of Part 5 of the Equality Act 2010. This wide-ranging directive sought to deal with the issue of discrimination in in employment, and part of this was discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. Now, in areas of morality where there is still some dispute around Europe, the law of the European Union does not make specific mandates. So when it comes to something like the formalisation of same-sex relationships, it is up to each individual country how they choose to proceed. For example, countries like France, Germany and the UK allow for same-sex marriage, while countries like Austria, Greece and Estonia do not. This is fine and allows the Union not to become split over questions where religion and the changing social landscape clash. For the purposes of the law, however, the European Court of Justice has held that where a country does decide to formalise same-sex relationships, then these should not be treated less favourably than a married couple. With this in mind, it is quite clear to see what the dispute at the heart of this matter really is. On the one hand, the EU has made a clear direction against discrimination in the context of employment, and the UK has allowed for this discrimination where it occurs before civil partnerships became a thing in late 2005. 
Bringing the question back to Mr Walker, we also have to think about how his pension should be regarded in terms of its timing and effect. Do the regular payments mean that it is something that is continuous, or is the pension something that crystallised when Mr Walker retired? This point may not sound important, but it really is and throws up much wider issues around the rule of law and its application to European jurisprudence. The principle of no retroactivity means that if the pension crystallised in 2003, then any future changes in the law would not be able to affect its applicability based on the law at that time. On the other hand, if the pension does not have a fixed point and is continuous, then any changes in the law would immediately apply to it. Quite a stark contrast then. When the case went before the Court of Appeal, it was decided that there was a clear fixed point at the date of retirement, and so Mr Walker's appeal was dismissed. The judgment was based on something referred to as the Barber line of case law, where the European Court of Justice limited one of its own judgments relating to equal pay with respect to a single fixed point, where it too crystallised. However, this is where we also have to take into account the other case I mentioned at the start of the episode, O'Brien and Ministry of Justice, 2017, UKSC 46. This particular case is not to do with discrimination per se, but rather on what basis a pension is to be calculated. If it was only the directive that gave extra rights and value to a pension, should it then be calculated from the time the directive came into force, or across a person's entire career? This is the question that the Supreme Court has posed for the European Court of Justice, and because the justices do not yet have an answer, a minority of the justices do not feel confident in saying that the so-called barber line of case law is relevant to the framework directive. For the majority, however, there is no doubt that there is no relevance whatsoever. After all, Barber is about finding a crystallisation point in relation to a judgment of the European Court of Justice, and not an item of legislation. Furthermore, there have also been two other recent cases at a European level that help to shed some light on this question and have a more relevant application to Walker. Reading both Maruko and Versorgung Sandstalt, Der Deutschen Bühnen, and also the case of Roma and Freier und Hansestadt Hamburg, it becomes clear that unless there would be drastic economic or social consequences in giving a spousal pension to Mr Walker's husband, then there is no good reason for the discrimination to stand. With this in mind, there was a unanimous decision that Walker's appeal should be allowed, and so not only should his husband be entitled to the spousal pension, but furthermore, Schedule 9, Paragraph 18 of the Equality Act 2010, that allowed the discrimination to occur in the first place, was deemed to be incompatible with the directive, and therefore should be disapplied. Looking at the case as a whole, anything that involves the European Union nowadays automatically invites thoughts on Brexit. I think that the decision by the Supreme Court shows the potential advantages and disadvantages of leaving the EU. On the one hand, it shows that EU law is not always drafted clearly and can leave open scope for interpretation in a way that is not exactly satisfying. To be honest, with the line of case law that we have been looking at from the European Court of Justice, it feels like they are trying to shut the door after the horse has already bolted. By this I mean that there are clearly issues with the law, but the way that they are addressing this is by making it up as they go along in the courts. 
Brexit will certainly give a lot more legislative and judicial freedom in this regard and also means that we will avoid the costly and timely process of referring cases to the European courts altogether, meaning we would already have an answer in the O'Brien case. There are some disadvantages as well, however, that we should not forget and that both Mr Walker and the pressure group Liberty have raised since the Supreme Court decision was handed down. Ultimately, the discriminatory provision was disapplied by the justices because of the supremacy of EU law. In other words, the UK failed to transpose the directive correctly, and so even though the Equality Act 2010 is an Act of Parliament, the Supreme Court was able to ignore it for the benefit of Mr Walker and the interests of applying EU law correctly. Without the force of the directive, however, this would not have been possible, and it is likely that if this case had been decided after the UK formally leaves the Union, then the result would have been quite different. An important part of Brexit, therefore, is in ensuring that people's rights are protected even after we leave. For the most part, this will be done by transferring many of the existing rights that currently exist solely within EU law into the UK legal system, but this case highlights that such a process is unlikely to be perfect. For a period, it is likely that a number of injustices will be shown to exist in the law, and for the most part, these can be changed by Parliament. But such a view would be ignorant of the fact that the government is not always going to be interested in remedying certain situations if it would prove difficult politically or does not meet with their wider agenda. Whether we like it or not, the EU has very much become one of the checks and balances on our own government and, of course, this can be infuriating at times, but it might just be the case that we won't truly know what we've got until it's gone. Well, thank you very much for listening to this episode and thanks as ever to bensound.com who provide the theme music. Make sure to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Uh, I'd love to know what you think. Also remember to check out the website uklawweekly.com for the latest news on various legal subjects and also the back catalogue of podcasts. I'll speak to you again next week when we'll have another case, but in the meantime, bye!